With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Powered by Clear Vision Development Group, this is Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast. Each week, we'll provide you with top business insights, fresh perspectives from world-class guests, and the tools you need to lead better than before. And now, here's your host, author and business coach, Tony Richards. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the program where we hold the record for throwing the most rubber chickens at Sven Gooley. Better than before. And on today's program, my guest will be Ted Prince. He's developed a brand new assessment. And I know there's a lot of assessments out there. We've had people on the show that have developed assessments. But today, uh, you're going to want to hear about this particular unique one that uh, Ted has developed for executive teams of Fortune 500 companies and public companies. I think it could make all the difference in today's competitive environment. And we're going to talk to Ted about that. And I'm also going to have a leadership and business lesson on teams all through the month of December. We're going to be talking about executive teams and teams that you lead. And so we'll have lessons on that all December long here in 2020. That's all today on Better Than Before, brought to you by University Subaru. And right now, you can get a new Subaru during the Subaru Share the Love event. Subaru will donate $250 to a charity in need. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. Back with Ted right after this. The three-row Subaru Ascent. Room for up to eight passengers. Standard EyeSight driver assist technology. Standard symmetrical all-wheel drive plus up to 27 miles per gallon. Kelly Blue Book's most trusted and best overall brand for 2020. The three-row Subaru Ascent. Join us for the Subaru Share the Love event going on now. Subaru will donate $250 to purchases or lessees selected national and hometown charities. University Subaru. Homegrown and proud of it. See retailer or Subaru.com slash share for details. Are you working twice as hard but enjoying fewer rewards? Maybe you're highly accomplished, but you just can't seem to break through and make the next big move. Or you run a business that has begun to grow stagnant. It doesn't have to stay that way. Even the best leaders have felt as if their careers were spiraling out of control. But that's when they had to lead and lead big. Tony Richards' new book, The Big Idea, 52 Ways to Be a Better Leader Now, will help launch you forward in leadership. Learn how to take charge and lead yourself, lead others, and lead your company. Purchase online today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and our website, clearvisiondevelopment.com. My special guest today is Dr. E. Ted Prince. He's the CEO and founder of the Perth Leadership Institute, which has developed unique leadership assessments for financial leadership and business acumen. 
He's the author of a book called The Three Financial Styles of Very Successful Leaders, which was published in 2005 and has since been published in China, India, and Taiwan. He's also written Business Personality and Leadership Success, Using the Leadership Cockpit to Improve Your Career and Company Outcome, which is on Amazon Kindle and also has been published in China in 2012. And then he's also written How Founders Can Bring Success to the New Silicon Valley in China. It was published in 2016 in English and Chinese in 2018. Now, he has over 300 publications in the area of leadership, management, human resources, business strategy, and technology, and is a frequent speaker at industry conferences. He's held the positions of visiting lecturer at the University of Florida and visiting professor at the Shanghai University of Finance and Economics. He's an advisor and consultant to numerous companies globally, and through his company, he works with them to improve financial performance and management effectiveness. He also works with other Perth consultants to advise them on how to best use the Perch, uh, Perth approach with their own clients. He's been the CEO of several companies in the technology arena in the U.S. and the U.K. over a period of 20 years, including chairman and CEO of a public company in Boston for over six years. He's also been on the boards of numerous other companies, including several public companies, and he holds a B.A. First Class Honors degree in Languages and Political Science from the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, and MA and PhD degrees in political science from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. It's my pleasure to welcome to our show today, Dr. Ted Prince. Ted, you know, reading all of this, I know you're smarter than me, but I also know you're smarter than me because I'm in Missouri where it gets down to 27 at night this time of year, <laughs> and you live in Florida. Now, that just tells me right there you're way above me in the intellectual capacity. Well, normally I'd agree with you, but I just went out for a walk, and it was uh, uh, 31 degrees when I went out. But we don't see that very often. You live in North Florida, so that's, that's, probably, right. as, that's probably as cool as it ever gets, isn't it? Yeah, well, we, we bring in the cold weather occasionally to give the gators a bit of a filler. <laughs> sometimes they need it, right? Good for you. Well, listen, I tell you, another reason you're a man after my own heart is that you know how to, and you teach people how to make money. And so that, especially in business, I mean, money is the blood of the body in, in business. And you teach people either how to make money or you can at least evaluate how good they are at it uh, today uh, with some of your tools. Uh, yep, yep. Uh, sometimes we prefer to use a different formulation. Shorthand, we say yes, we measure whether or not you'll make money. But in longhand, what we say is what we identify and measure is your behavioral propensity to create capital. And creating capital sometimes means that you lose money yeah. in the shorter term, right? And there are plenty of people who are, uh, are negative on our assessment who might make money, but they destroy long-term capital. So, you know, we've got to be careful what we talk about. In fact, if you look at the whole sustainability movement, it may look as if it's different, but sustainability is all about creating capital in the long term not just financial capital, uh, but environmental, social, and governance capital as well. Well, I knew you were going to be much better at explaining it than I was, so I should just stick to the questions. Um, but 
Tell me a little bit about how did you come to the idea of measuring business acumen and the uh, ability to uh, create capital? Well, it, it, it came out of my experiences running companies, especially a, a public company, and particularly on being quite a number of boards um, where we would hire CEOs who look fantastic and then a year or two later we'd fire them. And I started wondering, you know, these are all good guys or, or gals. I would start to wonder, well, why did they look so great to us a, a year or two ago? And we end up firing them a couple of years later. And what I realized was that in conventional terms, they were all very good leaders. You know, they were articulate, charismatic, conscientious, and so on and so on. But uh, they lost money. And what I realized was we were rewarding people legitimately for being good leaders, but good leaders aren't necessarily or maybe even most of the time, people who will make money. Mm. You can't equate leadership with making money. They might come together, they might might not, but you sure as hell uh, don't want to bet on it, as, as I'm sure you've seen yourself. Absolutely. So that's where I, you know, the, the realization came from that uh, all of us uh, grizzled elders who were uh, hiring these people uh, were going wrong in an enormous number of cases. Well, in a public company especially, it doesn't matter how much the analysts like you, they're still going to measure you every quarter, right? That's very true. And, and um, you know, I, I, I think I might have told you last time, I would, when I ran a public company, I would get consultants coming to me and say, Ted, would you like to do some leadership consulting? And I would always ask them, well, is it going to improve my stock price? And they would say, probably not. And I'd tell them, I'm not interested. My shareholders actually don't care if I'm a good leader. What they care about is if the stock price goes up or down. And if it's up, I'm a hero. Um, there's an Australian saying, today a turkey, tomorrow a feather duster. <laughs> but stock goes down, you're a feather duster, right? What role does uh, do you think the board plays in that as far as... Um... Are there a lot of boards out there that are going for the more charismatic CEO and they're not paying as much attention to whether or not they can create the capital? I think it's a, a universal tendency. It isn't always the case, but let's take three examples. Look at Marissa Mayer in Yahoo. Mm -hmm. She made massive losses every year she was there. And the board still kept her. Uh, look at Adam Newman and WeWork, right? Or look at um, uh, Elizabeth, uh, you know, in, in, in Theranos, right? Yes. I mean, the list goes on and on. That, that's not to say that you don't get good guys or gals running public companies. But, you know, if you have a CEO and he's at the home of a country, company that's making money, you can't assume it is that CEO that made the money. He's guiding a ship. It takes a long time to turn, right? And he's following a profit model, which probably was laid down with the founder. All he's doing is steering the bus between the yellow lines, but he didn't make the bus. He didn't make the road, right? He's just steering the bus. Yeah, there's that classic mistake where uh, 
I mean, Marissa got the job because she had a lot of Google shine, you know, and yeah. remember when uh, JC Penney hired the Apple executive thinking they were going to turn JC Penney, um, or, um, what's his name? Uh, the, the Scully. Yeah. Right? John Scully. Yeah. yeah. At Pepsi. Yeah. Yeah. Going, to, going to Apple. Yeah. These are all classic examples and you can't even assume usually, uh, if it, let's say a large product, uh, profit, uh, public company is making money, usually, um, he's following the profit model laid by that down by the founder and the succeeding generations. And his job is really as a maintenance technician, not as a, as a designer or a visionary. So, you know, you, it's horses for courses. And people who get promoted as CEOs, if they're a founder, it's a different thing. Then, you know, they fail, which means they couldn't do it, or they succeed brilliantly, which means they could. But it's very rare that you get founders running most companies, right? They're, they're all dead and gone by then. Right. They they check out after startup mode and then turn it over to someone else and I still think yeah. that's the right thing to do. Um, but you got to get the right person. Now I I've been working with assessments as both client and then the last twenty years or so as consultant and coach. And what I find a lot of times is you know people it's it's very uh, similar to them when they watch a high performing athlete they see the end result of the athlete's performance, but they don't really see everything that went into them getting to that level. Same way with assessments, you know, they see the end product, but I, I want you to talk a little bit about what has gone into this thing. I mean, you have put years of your life into developing this tool. Well, although I didn't know it at the time, I invented my own form of behavioral finance. I started work on this in 2002 and by 2005, I published a book on it, but I'd always been a working stiff CEO. I'd never had time to be an academic. And I didn't realize that in 2002, there was a, a Nobel prize awarded in behavioral finance, hmm. but I invented that for myself. I wasn't even aware that it existed and I did it because it came directly out of my work. And the difference between my behavioral finance and the Nobel Prize winners is the Nobel Prize winners were all academics. You know, they'd never run a business in their life. They never had to kill their own dinner. They never had to run a P&L, right? I'd always done that. So when I did it, I was, you know, they were concerned about the academic niceties of cognitive biases. I started off saying only one thing. I'm not interested in what made you a good leader. What I'm interested in what your results are. Results are all that matters. If you went into a company and when you left that company, the valuation is higher than when you went in, uh, you're a successful leader. But if it was lower than when you went in, you lost. It doesn't matter how beautiful, articulate or fashionable you were, mm -hmm. you lost, right? That's right. That's right. And that's the bottom line is uh, I reminded of uh, the Notre Dame football coach, Vince Lombardi, who said, we're going to play this football game and we're either going to get results or reasons why. And I don't want reasons why. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And you look at Billy Bean, right? I mean, he was, uh, he was a player. 
and he was in a, a, a badly rated team, right? And in the end, he brought in the, the statistician because they weren't getting the results. And there was only one thing that mattered, was how do you get results? Uh, and, of course, it worked. At my last, uh, at my last CEO job, you know, I had, uh, oh, 12, I can't remember the exact number. It was over 10 general managers of the market who reported to me at the corporate office. And I just told them, look, every Thursday I'm going to get a spreadsheet that tells me, you know, what kind of call we're going to have on Friday. <laughs> we're going to have a we're going to have a good call or going to have, you know, we're probably going to have a 20 minute call or we're going to have a 60 minute call, you know, but it's it's training yourself. It's almost like being a pilot of an airplane, isn't it? Where you don't look around what's going on around you as much as you focus in on what the metrics are telling you. Yeah, and you know, often uh, good leaders are very intuitive, right? I mean, you, of course, you've got to look at the metrics. But a lot of the leads, you know, one thing we found, we've done a lot of data over the years, more than 10 years, we've done a lot of data analysis. And one thing I can tell you is we have found there is a direct correlation between business acumen and education. And this is how it goes. The higher your level of education, the lower your business acumen. Oh, wow. And the, the uh, effect is particularly pronounced with MBAs and especially PhDs. People with, the, with PhDs, we've done a lot of analysis on this, generally have the lowest business acumen. Hmm. And the, and the not as good results then. Yes, yes. And, and people often ask me why. And, you know, I could talk all day about how it, why it is. You, you've heard the old saying, right? The guy at the top of the class always ends up working for the guy at the bottom. Right, right. And it's true. And you'll find, for example, that some of the most successful leaders are dyslexic. And one of the reasons for that is they're intuitive. They can't get a job because, you know, they can't read or write. So they go out and do it on their own and they depend on intuition. And of course, if you, if you're like that, there's only one thing you can count on it's results because if you're dyslexic and you don't get them, no one's ever going to do anything with you. Well, you know, I think especially in the tech industry in the last 25 years, we've seen the dropouts become the billionaires, right? We've seen the Bill Gates, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Steve Jobs, the guys who quit college after a year. Ab absolutely. And you've got Peter Thiel, who gives uh, young tech guys uh, $100,000 scholarships to start a company as long as they don't go to university or as long as they drop out. And he's a guy who's got a bit of experience we want to listen to. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So how long did it take you to sort of even out your methodology to get reliable results with your instrument? Uh, well, it, it took longer than I care to admit. Sure. But um, I started the work in 2002, and I got my first revenues out of it in 2008. And, and what is the primary thing that you think this tool will help with? Is it in the hiring process or is it in the evaluation or is, can it be used in coaching? I mean, tell a little bit about the usage of it. Well, we started off, you know, because I was, have been a working stick, 
I started off from the leadership end and I saw it as a development tool. And it was only later I realized that it was also uh, very useful, obviously, for coaching as a development tool, um, but also for, uh, for recruitment and onboarding. And then it was after that I realized it was a backdoor way of valuing companies to predict whether or not they're going to make money. So in effect, it can be used as a replacement or a substitute for things like fundamental and technical analysis, which in general give you wrong results. And then also, didn't you mention to me the other day when we were visiting that you can also do the whole team, the executive team? Oh, yes. I'm sorry I missed that out. Generally, we use it for teams. Of course, we can and often do use it for individuals. But, you know, if you're looking at a public company, for example, or a private, you really need to know how the team's going to operate. And it may be you've got one moneymaker in it, but he's eclipsed by another 10 who are not. And it's the lowest common denominator. So, yes. You really need to test the team. That's where the, uh, the true value comes in. And so what is your um, – I, mean, I don't really know how to ask this question, but there's statistical um, statistical relevance or relevance. Um, oh, yeah. My statistics course isn't coming back to me right now, but you, you, know, <laughs> what I'm, you know what I'm saying. Yes, yes. How can I prove it? Yeah. But before I wrote the book, uh, I did uh, two or three years of statistical research on a couple of hundred CEOs. And I tracked their results, profitability versus not. And I tracked it against the factors that I identified as being the most important factors. I got fantastic correlations. Um, I often have people asking me to see those that uh, statistical analysis, uh, I will give it to people, providing they sign an NDA. Um, but yes, we've got all that. I did that right at the very beginning. So, of course, um, on our show, we always stress, because we interview a lot of coaches, consultants, and people who do what we do, we always stress uh, anonymity and, of course, privacy and all that, but not revealing names or clients can you tell us a story or two, a client study that uh, where the assessment's been really key? Uh, well, we've had numerous like that, but you know, I can just out of random, I can think of one CEO and a management team of a multi-billion-dollar companies in New Jersey I tested many years ago, and they all got very bad results. And when I went into the a boardroom where they're all there ready for the results and their training, the CEO was looking pretty glum. And I knew what the problem was. I, I can't remember even what his name was, but I remember I said to him, Joe, you're looking pretty unhappy. Um, why are you looking so unhappy? And he said, because my results sucked. In fact, uh, they probably show me as a loser. Is that right? And I was playing along, so I said yes, and, uh, and he said, well, that's why I'm unhappy, and all my team, we showed each other our results, we shared them, I had advised them not to, but they shared them, and he said, they're all pretty, pretty similar too, 
And so I said to the CEO, Joe, I just want to ask you one question. Are the, res are the results for you right or wrong? What do you think he said? Well, if he if he was pretty self-aware, he said they're right. But if he was trying to put up a front, he said they're off. So I, I don't know. Right, you're right. That's how it goes. Yeah. And he said they're right. Okay. So later in the coaching, you know, when we had a, an opportunity to talk about it in more detail, he said, you know, I've had several CEO jobs and I've always managed to, he didn't say fool them, but I've always managed to convince them I'll make money. But I've always been aware of this issue. But he said, I want you to, but he said, I want you to explain something to me. He said, you're right. And all the writing you've given me is all right. And the results are right. But he said, I've made money in this company. I've been CEO for seven years. I've always made money. But your test is I'm a loser. So what gives? So I said to him, Joe, what's your gross margin? And he didn't even need to ask me what the rest of the answer was. Because, of course, he had a gross margin of 32%. His uh, competitors were all in the early 40s, right? Mm -hmm. But he was making money, and he was making it by raping the company, mm. cutting customer support, cutting other things. Plenty of people do that, right? Yeah. And, you know, some you, you get some CEOs and even CFOs who don't manage by a gross margin, they look at net operating or EBITDA and they say, well, it's positive, I must be good. But, you know, they could be raping the company. Trying to save their way to prosperity. Yeah, like Al Dunlop. Right. So, uh, you know, Chainsaw Al, right? There's plenty of those around. That's what he'd be doing. He got it immediately. I didn't need to explain anything else. But, you know, this was a good, self-aware, uh, smart, apparently successful CEO who'd been a CEO for uh, over 10 years. He'd been in a big brand name company before he came to this company. And he told me that company, they made him resign, but it wasn't public. I bet using that particular way of doing business, I bet he wasn't growing an iota. No, uh, he, he wasn't, as a matter of fact. But you know what? He had a board that stuck with him for many years, probably because he selected them all. Sure. Right? Yeah. And he would come back and say, look, he's a positive EBITDA. You'll still get paid your director's fees, right? Just uh, say yes. I mean, don't you find it's pretty hard to grow and then hack your expenses? Uh, well, it's pretty much impossible. You, know, you <laughs> might be able to do it a couple of years. I mean, look at General Electric, even under Jack Welch. It was clear that for many, many years, even Jack Welch was, inverted commas, smoothing earnings, right? Right, right. So they had massive decapitalization, destruction of capital, even on Jack Welch's watch. But, you know, he was going to kill anyone who said anything. And none of the journalists were going to do that. And then when he left, it all fell apart. What would you say are the top three... Um because I love this conversation about the principles of what it takes to, to grow your capital, to make money. What do you think are the three tendencies of someone who would do pretty well on your assessment? How would they go about managing the business? 
Uh, you know, if I tell you that, I'm going to kill you. you know? Oh, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. Um, I, I thought it was a pretty good uh, question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I can give you a couple, but, you know, there's a lot of discussion about them, and, and they're too simplistic. Yeah, sure. But I understand. one of the things is people who do better generally are introverted or highly introverted as long is they're not so highly introverted, they can't talk to people, right? So you find that deep introverts tend to be more innovative uh, and uh, therefore uh, they, they, they develop more special products, more unique products, and they get higher gross margins. But they, don't, they often don't grow the company because they're, they're too introverted, right? So are they... Um, so are... Yeah. Well, I just want to clarify. So are you saying they're more process-minded and less analytical? No, you, you can have introverts who are intuitive. Um, Bill Gates is one of them. Okay. Right? So what you find is there's introverts who are intuitive, particularly deep introverts who are highly intuitive, tend to make tons of money. Um, but if you're analytical and uh, introverted, um, you tend not to make money. You might have a high gross margin product, but you're spending too much money. People who are analytical and highly educated spend more money than they need to. People who are intuitive came up through the street are more intuitive. Uh, they, they're more frugal. Uh, they tend to make more money. How does that correlate to risk? Um, well, you know, that's a, a big discussion, too. Um, well, I'll have you back sometime. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if you're high risk, right, um, you tend to spend, it, it, there's a lot of BS about this because all of the risk in large companies is measured through compliance regimes, and they don't work. Right. They only work when times are good. We never account for behavioral risk, Right. That's why Lehman wins under, right? Right. Um, you tend to find that um, high-risk high risk individuals, they could be high-risk on the product side, although often they're not. Usually it means they're high-risk on the expenditure side, right? They spend too much money, which, of course, is what happens in most big companies. Well, listen, this is a fascinating discussion. Uh, I want to come back in just a little while and have you tell everyone how they can find you on the web and also how they can get in touch with you uh, if they're looking to engage you for one of these uh, one of these tools or a project. Uh, but I have 12 quick questions that I ask everybody who comes on the show as a guest. And these are just the first thing that comes to mind. Yep, sure. I'll shoot these to you rapid fire. Okay, number one. What's the best memory that comes to mind for you, Ted? Oh, wow. Um, it's being successful at Mega Project. Who's the number one hero in your life? Um, Mitt Romney. What's the top value you subscribe to? Uh, honesty. Who's the most important person in your life? Uh, my wife. What's her name? Terry. What's your favorite thing in the whole world? 
gelato ice cream. <laughs> What's your favorite food? Indian curries. Oh, wow. What's the most beautiful place you've ever been to? Switzerland. If you could describe success in one word, what would the word be? Giving people a happy life. How do you want to be remembered? My impact on making people more successful in their own terms. If you could go back and talk to a young Ted, what would your advice be for him? Uh, learn how to sell. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, what's your favorite sound? Electro. And what's the best lesson you've learned in your life so far? Uh, today, a turkey. Tomorrow, a feather duster. Never forget your place. We've been visiting with Ted Prince of Perth Leadership Institute. Ted, how do people find you? I go to the web. You can see my website, Perth, www.perthleadership.org. As spelled, Perth is in Perth, Australia, P for Peter, E-R-T-H, leadership.org, O-I-G, not .com. Wonderful. And my email, just add the handle E-T-E-D-Prince, E-T-E-D. Prince, P-R-I-N-C-E. And as usual, we'll put that in the show notes for everybody, and you can uh, uh, look on our podcast or contact us, and we'll send you on to Ted. And uh, also remember, Ted's got three books that you can uh, check out if you want to learn more about his uh, entire uh, study of this unique discipline in science. Listen, I, I'm so glad you visited with us today. We could go on forever. You, you'll have to come back soon because i got more questions for you. Love to do that, Tony. Listen, I appreciate you taking the time to visit with me, Ted. I appreciate you, okay? Okay. My pleasure, too, Tony. All right. Ted Prince, Perth Leadership Institute. Hang on. I got leadership lesson for you next on Better Than Before. The three-row Subaru Ascent. Room for up to eight passengers. Standard EyeSight driver assist technology. Standard symmetrical all-wheel drive plus up to 27 miles per gallon. Kelly Blue Book's most trusted and best overall brand for 2020. The three-row Subaru Ascent. Join us for the Subaru Share the Love event going on now. Subaru will donate $250 to purchases or lessees selected national and hometown charities. University Subaru. Homegrown and proud of it. See retailer or Subaru.com slash share for details. Receive weekly coaching tips from Tony Richards, delivered straight to your inbox. Whether you're a CEO or an entrepreneur, Tony can help you reach your goals and give you a competitive edge within your industry. Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo covers topics ranging from leadership development to teamwork to company culture and more. Text the word leadership to 38470 to sign up for Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo or sign up online at clearvisiondevelopment.com. Welcome back to Better Than Before. I'm Tony Richards. And all through December, we're going to be talking about teamwork and teams and executive teams. And today I want to talk about creating accountability in your team. Now, when you talk about accountability in teams, unfortunately, many people will use the word accountability as in punishment. 
Like, I'm going to hold you accountable or I'm going to punish you if you don't do this. It's probably the tone people use when they say they're going to hold you accountable, right? Sounds like they're going to do something bad to you if you don't do what you're supposed to do. I'm going to call you out. I'm going to punish you. But as I have spoken and written many times in the past, the ideal culture for teams is self-accountability and self-management, where every team member holds themselves accountable for duties and results. If you have to hold people accountable, you've just proven to yourself that your culture and your team and everything is not where you need it to be. And the example I always use is, and of course it's a sports analogy, but if you go to a major league baseball game, you don't see the manager of the team out at the batting cage with the players. Why? Because the player knows he needs to take batting practice. The player knows what time the game starts. The player knows how much time he has before the game starts, that all the players go through and take batting practice. They know they need to do it to be better players. No one has to hold them accountable. They hold themselves accountable because they know it's a worthwhile tool and practice in order to get better performance. And that's where you got to start, right? You got to start with having the people on your team understand and believe that the things that they need to do are the things they need to do to get better, not because you're hovering over them with the switch cut from the tree. One stage that is desirable for team members is if you can get to a place where they might hold each other accountable, but that's going to come with a unique set of challenges also. Some of those challenges are going to be people like to avoid the negative with friends and coworkers. They like to pass the gossip with each other. They like shooting the bull with each other. They like the water cooler talk. They like talking about what they did over the weekend. They like to talk about what their kids are doing, but they don't like dealing with bad news unless they absolutely have to. And you have to remind them that balancing feedback with positive and good news is also part of the whole equation. 75% good, 25% negative. Feedback and accountability shouldn't be all bad or it shouldn't be all good. It needs to be somewhat balanced, 75-25. Don't just focus on what needs work, but also on what is working well. Another one is, unless you participated in some athletics, you may have delegated bad news, complaints, or wrongs up to your parents or teachers. If so, it probably makes sense to you to abdicate that to your boss now. You may not have much experience in giving feedback to others and explaining how their performance affected you and how it affected the team either positively or negatively. You may not have had much practice and you may need some more practice to feel better about doing it. And that's going to take some development on your part. I saw a great... Uh, piece on ESPN this weekend of a basketball team where there was a sophomore telling a freshman basketball player, grab the ball with two hands when you rebound it. Don't be rebounding with one hand. I don't want to lose a game because you're not rebounding with two hands. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. The uh, more experienced person just slightly, I mean, sophomore and freshman, but just slightly more experienced person is giving feedback and coaching his teammate. 
He didn't delegate or abdicate all that to the coach. And that's what you need to be looking for in your team members also is allow them the ability to do some coaching as well. I've told this story a million times, and I'm sorry if I've told it recently, but in baseball, when I was slimmer and uh, weighed quite a bit less and probably had a lot more muscle, I didn't like running then. You know, I, I couldn't run very much now due to my, you know, knees and hips and things of that nature. But back then, uh, when I was in really good shape, I didn't like running all that much. And when we made a mistake, we all knew we had to run. Well, the whole time we were running, I was in the person's ear that made the mistake. I'm like, come on, man, you can do better than that. Don't let that ball go through your legs. Get your glove down, get your butt down, play low to the ground. I don't want to run again. (laughs) You know, I wasn't the coach. I wasn't even the oldest member of the team, but I was, you know, giving them some feedback like, come on, man, you can't do that in a game. We don't want to lose a game because you didn't have your glove down. You weren't playing low. You were standing up too straight. You let the ball go through your legs, all of that stuff. And in athletics, I think you get used to it. If you haven't ever participated in athletics, you may not be used to that kind of stuff. I'm telling you, though, that it exists and it works really, really well if teammates can coach other teammates and they don't abdicate all that to the coach. Another thing that's a little bit uh, of an obstacle with accountability is that people don't like to hurt friends and coworkers' feelings. The message ties too closely to relationship in many folks' minds. So they often worry that the feedback, particularly if it's improvement-oriented or negative, is going to harm or kill the relationship. And people have a fear that the recipient's going to take it personally. They'll be hurt by the message and will become angry or possibly vengeful or, or want to you know, get you back for it. So it seems easier just to keep quiet, let it go, think that it's somebody else's job, not my job, man, not my job. You know, I'm just telling you that, that I know that it happens and some of you may do it. I'm telling you, you need to try to get past it because how are you ever going to take the next step in your career? There's a frontline position in most companies. Next step up is supervisor or manager. How are you going to prepare yourself to give feedback to people uh, after you already have the job? Listen, nobody wants on-the-job training for a manager or leader. They want you to be fully prepared before you get that position. And learning to go ahead and um, bite the bullet and give that feedback to a teammate is going to help you make that transition to being a leader, manager, supervisor a lot easier. So my question for you is like, how are you going to get this feedback process started with your team knowing these obstacles I've just told you about? One helpful suggestion I've got for you is you might want to call them together and have a frank discussion with the team around feedback. You know, start asking them how they feel about giving feedback to each other and What in particular might make that difficult for them? You might also ask why they think it might be worth pushing past that initial difficulty and to start holding one another more accountable and also holding yourself accountable. One leader I know has been pretty successful in simply letting all his team members know that strife among the team is a fireable offense. Any team member who's the instigator of the the environment of strife would be put on notice with a warning or could be terminated. 
And you as the leader has to establish the ground rules of what you're going to be willing to accept and what you will not accept in the work environment. Now, this leader I'm talking about, this friend of mine, he found it helped his environment with feedback because people wouldn't hold it against each other or be nasty if they were held accountable by another team member because they knew that strife wasn't tolerated. And so if they walked away hacked off or upset or mad, well, that was going to affect the environment and it was going to create strife in the environment and that just wasn't going to be acceptable. You can also frame accountability with your team as part of continual improvement processes and relationship improvement techniques. When you see the wrong behaviors and do nothing, you're setting yourself and your team up for failure and frustration because you're allowing something that you shouldn't be allowing. And many times people are not going to change on their own. They need to be coached. They need to be directed. They need feedback. They may not even realize they need to change. Behavior that's not challenged will not change, and behavior that is rewarded will be repeated. And the key is to foster an environment where accountability becomes part of a shared experience of higher quality and elite performance. Now, just remember, this is going to require you to enlist your whole team when applauding the good behavior of others and also the behavior that needs to be challenged. And if you can create an environment of mutual and ongoing accountability, your team will improve over time and it will result in better outcomes and even better and deeper relationships. That's our show today. Better Than Before is brought to you by University Subaru. And right now, when you get a new Subaru during the Share the Love event at Subaru, they will donate $250 to a charity in need. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. You can follow me on Twitter at Tony Richards 4 and at ClearVisionDEV. On Facebook, we have a page, Tony Richards, speaker, author, coach. And then uh, my parlor is at Tony Richards 4. So uh, we'd love to connect with you. On behalf of our associate producer, Whitney Coker, and our chief producer, William Foster, I'm Tony Richards reminding you that everything gets better when you get better. Thank you for listening to Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast powered by Clear Vision Development Group. For more resources from Tony, visit clearvisiondevelopment.com. Join us next time for another episode of Better Than Before with Tony Richards. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.